Ace's the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details. You are Locked On Warriors, your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to bring you your team every day. The Warriors played Game 2 against the Utah Jazz and won 115-104. A distinctly weird game for a couple different reasons. The Warriors had a huge, huge, huge opening first quarter, 33-15 run, and then they... I think they broadly got outplayed the rest of the game. Uh, Utah played really well, but they still held on for that double-digit win. And Draymond Green had an injury scare with a tweaked knee. He had also had some hip issues on the same side, on his left side, both during this game. And to talk about the whole thing, start middle and end, is Adam Wardson of the Fast Break blog. Love talking with him. Fellow late worker. So it's it's great in that way as well. So hope you enjoyed. Our conversation runs about 23 minutes. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I framed my piece, the first one, for The Athletic in terms of kind of optimism and pessimism. And so the idea being that for pessimists, you could say, you know, the Warriors had this huge run at the start of the game. I think they they were up 30 to 13 at one point, and yet it still got close at the end. A lot of guys didn't play very well. But then pessimists could say, I mean, then optimists could say, yeah, but the Warriors still beat a very game Utah team. And they didn't play particularly well. I think this is in a, a situation where both the optimists and the pessimists have something they can hold on to. I think there's truth in both those statements. Uh, the Warriors have to be thrilled with how they started this game. They just blew Utah out of the water in the first quarter. Uh, the team shot 61% from the field, held Utah to 28% shooting. And that's just ideal for what the Warriors are looking for at both ends of the court. But then they also reverted to some of their bad habits. They showed that they let teams back into games. They lose intensity. They make stupid mistakes. They're careless with the ball. All the things that would drive Kerr nuts and lead him to break clipboards, we saw good examples of those in the last three quarters. So there's a little bit of both here. They they clearly can be dominant, but they're clearly not a first to 48th minute team quite yet, particularly against someone like Utah that they worry about, but not really in the true sort of threat to beat them sense. Right. And it's a challenge that I, I've tried to convey to before that it's really hard to win a series going down 0-2 because you have to win four out of five. And so I, I think that that part of this story is it's not done. I mean, Warriors fans know better than almost anybody that w- when something yeah. is not complete, it, it isn't over. But I think that there there were some inklings here to me of why this could be maybe more of a five-game series. I was having a discussion with another media member about whether it could get to six. But at the same point, you could talk about, other than the risk of injury and things like that, the difference between a four- and a five-game series, or maybe even a six, is not that significant. Yeah, I, I think that that's ultimately right. The Warriors have shown that they can they can lose a game here or there and bounce back and still have a decisive finish to a series. The thing that keyed me into how seriously the Warriors were taking this game later was in the third quarter, and I'm sure we'll get to this, when Mike Brown immediately went to uh, the small lineup, the Hamptons Five, whatever you want to call it, bringing in Iguodala for Pachulia. 
Uh, he did it with nine minutes to go in the third, which is the earliest I can remember that lineup being deployed in the third quarter in a long time. Uh, the Jazz were on a run. They were threatening to really tighten up the game and, and maybe pull even. And the willingness to go immediately to that core lineup for the Warriors at that point stressed that they didn't want to mess around here. They didn't want to take a risk that they could end up uh, split 1-1 here and really give the Jazz a burst of life heading back to Utah. It was also a decision that Mike Brown is substantially more comfortable making than Kerr. I don't think Kerr would have done it at least that quickly, even though they looked out of sorts during that stretch. And the Warriors immediately responded. I think the lead the lead got cut basically in half in those first three minutes, and then they pushed it back up into double digits, and I think it went as high as like 14 or 15 at that point before they brought JaVale back in with about four minutes to go. And it spoke to, you're right, that, that sense of urgency and also the, the, the help in some ways that Mike Brown has been. I mean, I obviously think that the Warriors are, are worse off not having Kerr, but there have been a couple things, Game 3 of the last series, and I think that stretch in this one where having a different voice at the top might have opened things up a little bit. It's a good example of the trade-offs that you get between Kerr and Brown. I, I agree with you. I don't think Kerr would have gone to that lineup that early in the third quarter. I think he would have let the starters play out a little bit more, or he might have tried a different substitution, something more with his normal rotation. Uh, the trade-off for that, though, is you have a, a game two where the Warriors were up quite a bit for the entire game. They never trailed. They haven't trailed this entire series. But you still have Curry playing 38 minutes, I think, uh, which is pretty high given his minute count recently. Uh, you have Green, Durant, Thompson, all 36, uh, which isn't ridiculous. We've seen guys in the playoffs clearly play 40-plus minutes in these big games. But in the second round against an opponent that you had up against the ropes, it's a little frustrating to have to play guys that long. And it can be scary, like when you see Draymond go down with his knee locking up. Uh, you don't want to put players in a position where they're logging unnecessary fourth quarter minutes and exposing themselves to injury, uh, like we saw with Tony Parker the other night. That, that's a situation that's just a nightmare for everybody. Something I wanted to note that I just found interesting about the game, we don't usually break it down into the middle quarters, but in the second and yeah. third quarters, the Warriors shot 50% from the field. They scored 59 points, so you, you think about that as being overwhelmingly positive. Utah... 62% from the field, 50% from three, got to the free throw line more, and only had two offensive rebounds. They were really just getting pretty solid first shots. Some of it was also Gordon Hayward making some ridiculous ones, but another part that fueled it was the return of the a warrior, an old Warriors problem of turnovers. In those two quarters alone, the Warriors had nine turnovers, six of them live ball, and the Jazz had 14 points off of that. So 14 to 67 isn't that much, but it can be significant. Yeah, the live ball turnovers were really the thing that, to me, shifted the momentum, uh, along with the Warriors' loss of intensity on defense. And I think that those two things can be combined to some degree. But the live ball turnovers, Utah gets out into the open court. They're able to push the tempo. Uh, they're able to get into the lane early before the Warriors' defense gets set. Uh, Hayward in particular called out post game that he thought that in the second quarter when the Jazz ended up shooting 68%, one of the things that they really benefited from was being able to turn the corner on the Warriors to really get into the lane to put some pressure on the defense like they'd been unable to do really the entire series up until this point. 
they found something there. They clearly gained some confidence and were more comfortable after they were able to get into that offensive rhythm. And I think it started with the turnovers to give them that opportunity. Something I found interesting about this game is that there were two guys who had like kind of singular stretches that were that were d- different from the rest of their game. So Rodney Hood, I I, I remember him hitting a series of uh, I think it was like two or three shots in a relatively short sequence, and then I looked up, he was four thirteen in the game. He missed him missed him threes he normally makes, and then. David West, if he, it feels like he shot all five of his shots within like two minutes. Yeah, it was a weird game from West. There were times where he had a big flurry of activity and then he sort of disappeared for some of his other stretches. He also was completely absent from the Warriors rotation in the third quarter. Uh, I think he usually makes an appearance at the end of the third quarter. I not not usually, but sometimes. I mean, that's actually been a running right. joke of mine that, that Kerr never played him in the first and the third, but the playoffs have been a little bit different. Yeah, so he, he was there at the beginning of the second and the fourth, as he usually was. Really didn't have an impact in the fourth. Uh, and in the second quarter, he had that flurry, but then he also had a stretch where he was overpassing it a little bit, trying to force things. It uh, wasn't one of his best games, but still got the job done for him. Something else that was different about this game, and I, I think it was a good thing overall, was that Brown turned for very short spurts to Patrick McCall and Matt Barnes. Barnes in particular, I mean, he had that in that stretch, basically immediately after he got subbed in, he had a, a really nice pass, one of the best I can ever remember from him, to Andre Godala for a dunk. It was a really quick read. And then he also had, I think it was kind of a runner-type shot, around that same time and you know while Utah did score a couple times in that possession Gordon Hayward caught him on a three I like the idea of just kind of when you're looking for a spark trying different things out like they did when when they went to the Hamptons five it's another difference between Kerr and Brown Uh, Kerr goes deep in his rotations so there would be regular minutes I think with Kerr for McCall in the series regular minutes for Barnes uh, but he also likes to have a fairly strict schedule for it. So those guys know when they're going to be inserted for the most part. Uh, Brown seems like he's less willing to go deep into the rotation, but he's more willing to sort of call an audible to improvise a little bit with where he goes in inserting people into lineups. Uh, the Barnes point that you flagged w- was an important one. I think he gave the Warriors some intensity to close the quarter and he made some great plays like you pointed out. And I think there's still going to be minutes for McCall in this series. He hasn't quite found a place to run yet, but I think he could be a contributor in Utah, particularly if they're looking to up their defensive intensity to really get someone to help disrupt the ball, uh, provide some wing defense. He's going to have a spot where I think he'll contribute. Something to remember, and I'm not going to do another podcast before Game 3 because it's on Saturday and you know this will be the Friday morning podcast, is that these two games in Utah are played at altitude. And... While Denver gets a lot of that attention because they are the Mile High City and they they are the team that has the biggest home court advantage for that reason, Utah is number two and they have a sustained home court advantage as well. They're the only two teams that do, and it is and it is that altitude. And so we'll see if that leads to Brown and the Warriors playing at least a slightly different rotation because it's going to be a different level of activity and fatigue for them. It sounded like the Warriors were flying tonight, too. I'm not sure when they scheduled, but they probably want to get out there as quickly as possible to start acclimating. Uh, In the Denver series, that was always an issue. The longer you stayed in Denver, the better you acclimated and the easier those games would become. This is a pretty quick turnaround for games three and four. There's not a lot of rest time built in. They're going to get out there. They'll have Friday play on Saturday, have an off day on Sunday, play again on Monday. So fatigue and the ability to to run uh, at the speed the Warriors won at that altitude, I think is definitely going to be an issue. 
speed is also an important part of this game from the Utah perspective. They played without George Hill. He had a big toe, big toe issue that's been persisting for a little while now. And so he had to sit in this game, which was kind of to a degree, the, the jazz punting a little bit on this because he is by far their best option at point guard. Makes sense. He's, he's awesome. So they went with Shelvin Mack, a little bit of Hollow Neto, a little bit of Dante Exum. And something that was distinctly different about game two than game one was that the jazz actually pushed it not only in transition but sometimes off of makes and that's something i've advocated for them to do for the entire quinn snyder tenure and he after the game said basically that oh he's like oh we we run when we have like when we have the opportunity when we think it helps us win and i think they need to run a lot more and we saw why in this game because the warriors are so much better as a half court defensive team than a transition team uh, i think that snyder's coming around to that or he's being more transparent and recognizing that that's uh, an issue uh, he said after the game as well that he knows that when they get long in the clock they don't necessarily get better opportunities from the Warriors the best look they may have in a 24 second shot clock is in the first eight seconds before the Warriors can really lock in and find their men uh, particularly when you have someone like Draymond who once he gets in his position in the middle of the floor can really switch on a bunch of people and defend everywhere your best shot is going at the basket before Draymond's fully back and set up and has a chance to really survey the scene, figure out where the best spots are going to be for him to be a defender. So I think something else that we need to talk about, we've kind of danced around a few times, is Draymond shooting in that first half. I mean, he was 5 of 7 <laughs> from 3, was completely ridiculous. He, he was really the only warrior, to me, that had a, a really strong game overall. Durant got to the line a ton and ended up ended up producing a pretty good game statistically, but Draymond not only did that, but he also contested the most shots, kind of had his had a, had a solid defensive night, maybe not as overtly dominant as game one. Some of that also is that he played part of the game on a, on a tweaked knee. But that shooting was just such an unexpected burst for the Warriors, especially when Andre Iguodala is still 0 for the playoffs from three. You don't beat the Warriors when they have someone hitting open threes. There's always going to be a player, given all the offensive threats that the Warriors have, there's always going to be someone who the defense is going to have to sack off on and leave open. Uh, sometimes it's Draymond, sometimes it's Iguodala, sometimes it's Clark. Last year in the playoffs, it was uh, Harrison Barnes. Whoever that player is, if that guy's hitting his open threes, it's lights out. The game's over. Uh, so with Draymond hitting that many open threes early in the first quarter, uh, it was just the Warriors at their most dominant. Uh, he made a point tonight, and he did after game one, uh, to talk about how he's been in the gym since early April, really trying to get up shots, to get his confidence, to get a rhythm with three-pointers. Who knows how long it'll hold, but it definitely looks like it's paying dividends right now. It certainly seems that way, and... The Jazz have made a concerted effort, and as you said, I understand why they did this, to leave Draymond and Andre open for three, and they've been burned on it from Draymond more than I ever expected. But at the same point, it's a concession that I think you have to be willing to make overall, considering what the other options are. It's clearly your best option. Uh, if you can have Draymond or Andre Iguodala or Ian Clark shooting instead of Durant, Clay, Curry, that's a total no-brainer. And it may be one that ultimately benefits the Jazz in the long run. We'll see if Draymond can keep this up through the entire series. He's been great shooting in games one and two, but I could easily see him go cold, have a rough night, keep throwing it up, and have it be a very disruptive factor for the Warriors' offense. 
for much of the game, this wasn't a huge lead for the Warriors. And if you subtract a couple or three of Draymond's three-pointers, you have those misses with Utah going back the other way. This is a much tighter game. It looks very different in terms of the flow. I'm thrilled that Draymond's hitting the shots right now. It's been a huge boost for the Warriors, but I don't think that they can assume that this is the way it's going to be for the rest of the playoffs. I would agree with that. And something else I wanted to discuss, I pulled up the stat because I had been thinking about it during the game, and you and I have talked about it before. But so in this game, the Warriors scored 123.5 points per hundred possessions when Curry was on the floor. He played 38 minutes. They scored 70 points per hundred possessions when he was out. And wow. It's been a decidedly mixed bag offensively with that second unit. You know, they have some games where they're hitting a lot of shots. It's, it's usually Clay that's the linchpin of it. And something that I've been thinking about for the last couple games, especially now that he's close to 100%, is an idea of actually kind of increasing the stagger a little bit between Curry and Durant. So my idea is sit Durant, make the Draymond Green sub. So Draymond often comes in to end, he sits earlier and then he comes in to end this first and third quarter and then he plays into the second, which is good. I think that's a good use of his, a good use of his rest and everything like that. Bring Draymond in for Durant then, give him like two minutes to start that break that Curry can get, you know, higher usage. He loves to end quarters, go through all that. And then maybe bring Durant in earlier in that second fourth to help buoy the offense. It certainly gives them more diversity. Uh, what we've seen when the second unit isn't working is Clay typically either isn't moving off the ball or shots aren't falling. And then there's really no one else who's a, a clear scorer. Clark's inconsistent. Iguodala is inconsistent. Uh, West has his spots, but he's not going to put up a ton of points for you. Uh, and Draymond, if his three is not going, it's not a huge offensive weapon. Uh, Durant, though, would give you an ISO player. He'd give you someone who could get to the line, which is something we should also talk about uh, for tonight's performance. Uh, he just gives you a lot of different looks when things stagnate. Uh, and that may be what the second unit needs as a fail-safe. Uh, so far, they've been pretty successful in terms of at least holding the leads uh, against uh, opponents in the playoffs. But it, as they hit a harder competition, I think we may see uh, Durant's minutes creep up just in the way that you mentioned, having him come in earlier to help bolster that unit. Plus, depending on how they handle the assignments defensively, the, the Warriors are at least going to face one more tough shooting guard, you know, assuming they get they make it to the finals and face LeBron there. It could very well be two if, if the Spurs end up gutting it out without Tony Parker and beating the Rockets. So if Durant gets some or many minutes on those guys, and I think that's entirely possible, that will also put more strain on him. You wanted to talk about Durant's foul shooting. The thing that I found most interesting about that was the Warriors only made 33% of their shots in the fourth quarter from the field. They were eight, they were 6 of 18 from the field. The Jazz also weren't great. They were 7 of 24. Durant shot 9 of 10 free throws. I think he had 14 total in the game, 14 or 15. And those were the only ones shot by the Warriors in that entire stretch. Durant ended up shooting 75% of the free throws for the Warriors for the night. He had 15 of their free throw attempts out of 20 total. So really a disproportionate amount. And some of that is a sort of the quirk of the Euro fouls that they were doing to slow down the fast break opportunities. But the Warriors were clearly playing Durant as a strategy for that. They knew that the Jazz liked to foul 
in that situation to try to break momentum. So they were having Durant crash the boards, push it into the open court to try to draw those foul situations uh, to get him to the line. And it ended up working really well in a total mess of a fourth quarter offensively for both teams. The surest bet was just to get the ball in Durant's hands so he could create something and get himself to the free throw line. That was something that I wanted to look for this entire season was really if Durant could put that together, see what he could do, because the Warriors have been notoriously bad at getting to the line. And Durant had his moments during the year, but then he also had the ones where he wasn't. And I thought it was very impressive that he was able to put that together and create basically, as you said, their only reliable offense during that fourth quarter. There are two things that he kept coming back to in his comments after the game, rebounding and free throws. If you put those two items at the top of Durant's agenda for the things he needs to do for this team, along with maybe some rim protection defense, which he was quite good at tonight, uh, he's going to have a hell of an impact. That's exactly what the team needs uh, for him to make sure that they can clean the glass, prevent second chance points. They did a great job on that tonight. And then to provide a reliable offense for when the game gets really ugly, when it gums up, when you're not getting clean looks at the basket. And again, he made sure that this was not a tight fourth quarter by getting himself to the line from as soon as he checked in right until the end. Is there anything outside of what we've discussed so far that you're looking for in game three or just the two games in Utah more broadly? I'm still looking for a clay breakout game. I thought we were going to see it earlier. This on paper struck me as a good matchup for clay. Uh, he just hasn't quite put it together yet. We've seen a couple quick bursts where he's looked like he's been in a groove. We have not seen uh, a two or three quarter stretch though, where he's really hot and he's really the focal point of the offense. Wouldn't surprise me if that comes in game three or four. Definitely think it would be a help for this team. Uh, I also think that they're probably going to play with a bit more discipline uh, in Utah. I think that these last two games have been an example of where Oracle can be a detriment to the Warriors to some extent. The, the crowd gets so fired up during the good stretches. The Warriors start playing to that crowd. They start uh, doing flashy things that get them into trouble. It drives Steve Kerr mad. When you're on the road, they have more of a killer instinct. They're looking to really drop the hammer, to just be relentless to not necessarily make the flashy plays, but just constantly keep the pressure on. And I think that that can serve them better uh, against an opponent with, like the Jazz where they may lose the focus a bit. We'll have to see if it actually rears its head in Game 3, but I've said before that the Warriors sometimes benefit from playing badly in a win because while they don't get that chance to fully reevaluate, they know what they did wrong in this game, and generally they don't make the same mistakes two times in a row. So if they can clean up one part of it, you know, the turnovers being one, some of their just bad defensive possessions, like the one where nobody was at the beginning of the third quarter where nobody caught Shelvin Mack, and he just took an open three before anybody got to him. If they can clean those sorts of things up, their talent level is just so high that they have a very good chance of winning. And I understand the idea that it takes a loss to really reevaluate it, but I don't think we've necessarily seen that from this team in the playoffs where their intensity can wax or wane, but they understand the stakes. It's a good point. The team in their postgame comments definitely sounded a little sheepish. They, they all knew exactly what the turning points were and what they had made mistakes on. They didn't need the tape to really break that down. Uh, it will be a good reminder for them that they need to maintain their focus and their intensity. And like you said, they're, they're so talented that once they identify these things, once they get a reminder, they tend to correct them. 
And it was also a reminder that the Jazz are a very good team. They did have that bad stretch at the beginning of this game, but they're capable. They have a lot of guys who can make shots. They can play good defense. And I think that's a good test for the Warriors, however long the series goes. The Jazz are a very good team that is really banged up right now. Uh, I don't think enough is being made because the Jazz are not really making excuses for it. But they've had some significant injuries that have really screwed up their rotation, screwed up their preferred style of play. They're just gutting it out. They're finding a way to hang around, to be a pest, to be physical, to be aggressive. It's a really mature performance by a team that hasn't been tested in the playoffs before. Uh, I think we'll see how the series plays out. But even if they don't end up with a win or or really pushing the Warriors that much uh, on the scoreboard, they have to be pleased with their performance so far in the series. Agreed. Anything else you feel like we need to discuss? That's it. Game three is going to be interesting. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Adam Wardson for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the Fast Break blog, and you can also follow him on Twitter at GSW Fast Break. I'm really excited for Game 3. I think it'll be a nice little test for the Warriors to see what they can do. I'm sure that the Jazz crowd is going to be fired up, and they have all the reason to be. I mean, this is going to be their first game there after a very disappointing Game 6 against the Clippers, and then they won Game 7, and then they had you know the two games at Oracle. So I think their crowd's going to be really amped up for it, and as we talked about a little bit, it's going to be a game at altitude. So we'll see what Warriors team shows up. I expect George Hill to be back on the floor and see whether they can take the lessons from a win and really carry them forward and how they're going to handle that. And absolutely, I will do that game for Locked on Warriors, put a podcast out, presumably that night, unless something crazy comes up. And then, you know, that I I think I'll probably do something Sunday too, but I'll be tired because I'm going to do the Twitter NBA show in some form for, I think, all three games on Sunday unless something happens in one of those series before then. So you can keep an eye out for that as well. As was mentioned in the podcast, my first piece for The Athletic is already out, the game analysis piece, and the every player, which is through The Athletic app, will be out. Probably most of the players will be done tonight before I crash, and then the other ones, if there are any, will be done tomorrow morning. I just have to see how how I feel and how that works, but you can check that out. Their app is pretty awesome, too. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'll also talk about this game with Nate for Dunked On, which will be out probably a couple hours after this, but it should be out by the time most of you listen to this, unless you really enjoy listening to podcasts at 1 in the morning. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com, at Danny LaRue on Twitter. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise that I will respond, but I will read it, and I think that that matters. And so I, I do promise that. If you want to support the show, leave a rating, leave a review, and you can also support the show by downloading every episode and subscribing. Subscribing is a very important thing to to just kind of just for a show to, to get it in there, especially something like Lockdown Warriors where we're, we come out pretty consistently. So thanks again for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99. And our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.